I'm glad you're here this morning because we're going to be in Mark chapter 13. And this is, we're talking about apocalyptic literature today. So this is like the pee your pants, frighten the life out of you Sunday. So welcome visitors. If you're here for the first time, we're happy you're here. So we don't frighten the younger generations. We'll dismiss 10, 11 year olds for their class. But I'm going to invite you to turn to Mark chapter 13 while you get there. I'm going to give you a, a, a quick plug about uh, the upcoming women's retreat, March, or March. October 13th, men's retreats in March, October 13th to the 15th, women's retreat coming up. Ladies, if you would like to register, the place to do that is online. I would encourage you to to be a part of that and invite, if you have friends, family that you think might want to go and join you in it, please invite other people to come be a part of that. We've rented a large enough facility that we could uh, be able to to do that and bless the lives of other people. By the way, I think retreats are a very biblical thing to be a part of. I mean, study the history of Israel as it unfolds in the Old Testament. God often would call them away to different celebrations, festivals, to focus on him, to get out of the day in, day out grind of life and be encouraged. And so husbands, I would encourage you, I know, I know this might be hard, but to think about taking care of the kids for a couple of days without the, your wife around. I mean, we're talking tremendous sacrifice, right? But you carry, carry my goal here, which is just to keep them alive till she gets back and uh, send her on her way. Let her be blessed and, and, and have that time of encouragement. I think it's, it's good for the soul. So if you're, you're interested in that, uh, place to register is online. There's information cards on the back table when you leave. Information counter outside. Mark chapter 13. The end is near. Right? I, I want you to know um, that's actually the last, uh, <laughs> the last thing I have in mind in talking about this section today. I, I want to present uh, Mark 13 without really taking a hard stance on any um, theological camp. Only because... I want to help us in our ability to interpret passages of scripture like that. Now I'll tell you, you know, where I've been trained and what I've learned from in this, but, but that's not my end goal in all of this. I, I really want us to help us to study God's word and, and be encouraged to be faithful to the Lord and pursue him with our lives. And so uh, that's the goal today. In Mark chapter 13, if I give us a backdrop to where we are together, especially if this is your first time with us in this series, we've been going through the series all summer long, going chapter by chapter A chapter each week on the gospel of Mark, looking at the genius of Jesus, desiring to know Christ as he wants to make himself known in our lives. Jesus became flesh, dwelt among us. The intimacy of who he was was made known in our lives so that we could draw near to him and worship him in in truth. And so God created us for relationship. Jesus made that way for us to experience reconciliation relationship with the Lord by dying for, uh, for us on the cross. And God created you primarily for that relationship in him. God didn't create you based on what you do. God created you because of who you are in relational connection to him. The primary purpose of your life is founded in relationship with the Lord. And that's what we want you to discover this morning is deepen that relationship with God and enjoy that journey with him, that purpose for which he has created you. The last couple chapters of Mark, what we've seen together is the disciples in Mark chapter 10, Jesus started pronouncing that his death was coming. And and, and the disciples saw the political landscape change around Jesus. People wanted to kill him. The the leaders and the uh, political leaders, religious leaders were starting to turn against Christ. And Jesus journeys into Jerusalem. And this is going to lead to his crucifixion. It tells us in chapter 10, as he's going into Jerusalem, the disciples won't walk and won't walk beside him. They're like behind him. Like, go ahead, Jesus. We're just going to see if everything's all right. And we're just going to hang back here while you make it into there. And they see Jesus not only going to Jerusalem, but he does on the back of a donkey to the praise of the crowds. 
saying, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus goes into the temple as if to present himself as the Passover lamb who's come for the sacrifice at the same time when the Passover lamb was to be sacrificed in Israel during that celebration time, which was an ultimate picture of Jesus who was that sacrificial lamb for all of our sins. As Jesus presented himself there, it tells us that Jesus a little later encounters the religious leaders in chapter 12 of Mark. And the religious leaders, the, the, the big people in society, the ones everyone looked up to, the people with authority and power, they come to Jesus and they ask him questions. And they're trying to tra- trap Jesus and uh, trying to get people to, uh, to deter from following after Christ and to make Jesus look foolish. And Jesus handles himself masterfully, showing the genius of who he is as God in the flesh. And the disciples are all excited now. I mean, they came in timid into Jerusalem. They see the celebration of the crowds. They see the way Jesus handles himself in front of the leaders where they can't even come against him. And they're just taking in the moment of this Passover week. All the people gathering around, people just praising Jesus' name. And it's in this passage they start to reveal some of the celebrational thoughts in their minds. I mean, they're in, in their head, they're thinking... The Messiah has come. He's going to set up his physical kingdom. And Israel's finally going to dominate over Rome. We're going to rule. And we're standing with Jesus as we rule. In fact, the disciples are even arguing during this period. Who's going to be greater in his kingdom? Is it me? Is it you? I'm vice president. You can be secretary of state. No way. And they're going back and forth over this, thinking about the kingdom. In fact, when Jesus came in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, his, his pronouncement was, the kingdom of God is at hand. And when he sent out his disciples in Matthew chapter 10, he tells them, preach, the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the demonstration, the declaration, this kingdom, this invitation, the people to join. Jesus has invited us into him. And what Jesus is ultimately bringing is shalom, which is peace. God's created you for relationship. And he's made himself so intimately known. Becoming flesh, born in a manger, about to give his life for you. The Bible tells us in Romans 8, all of creation groans. This idea of shalom is, is it's peace in your relationship with God for all of eternity. It's peace in this world that's under the curse of sin. Jesus comes to restore that. The disciples are excited and they have these preconceived ideas of what that kingdom's to look like and Jesus is about to flip that upside down on them. But he just reminds them of one simple truth throughout all of this. He does what every great leader should do. Or I should say every great leader does do. Every great leader begins with the end in mind. Where are we going? How do we get there? And Jesus in the story is sort of peeling back the picture of what awaits the future so that we can see the victory in him. When we talk about prophetic apocalyptic literature, that's the ultimate goal in it. Then in all that's represented in that type of literature, it's, it's intended to bring us into worship of the one true God and to see as followers of Jesus in the end, we are victorious in him. So regardless what happens from this day forward, if, if your hope remains fixed on that picture, that's what ultimately wins. In, in fact, in Mark chapter 13 and verse 31, Jesus said this, heaven and earth will pass away, 
but my word will never pass away until all is fulfilled. In life when things are difficult, the motivation for us to keep stepping forward is this thought of hope. Can I make it? What do I have to look forward to? What's going to endure? I can see all of this crumpling around me. Where is that thing that will endure? And Jesus, as a, a leader, is just reminding his disciples in this moment that, that it, it, it rests in him. And so as he peels back the curtain, you, you see throughout, throughout Scripture history, all, all followers of Jesus that, that are leading in those moments, they, they tend to ask those questions. In fact, when, when God called Moses in, in Exodus, in, in Exodus chapter 5, Moses goes before Pharaoh like God called him, and he tells Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh makes it more difficult on, on the Israelites. He makes their work more complicated. And, and because of that, they turn against Moses. And Moses comes before God and he's like, what are you doing? God, I don't understand. You called me to represent you in this world and it's not easy. And, and then in chapter 6, the Lord in Exodus sort of pulls this picture back. In verse 5, he says this, I have remembered my covenant. In chapter 6, verse 6, I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens. I will deliver you from bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God. I will bring you to the land which I swore. God, where are we going? And so Mark chapter 13, verse 1. The disciples, with all the commotion around Jesus, as Jesus has gone out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Unbelievable, right? And then Jesus says this. Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down. Like, if you're thinking Jesus bringing his kingdom, Jesus going to conquer, we're with Jesus, I'm vice president, he's president, and all of a sudden he's talking about your best buildings being torn down, you're going to be like, say what? What are you talking about? I'm following you because I'm making my room in that place. That's my palace, right? And you're talking about tearing it down. How does that work? And so Jesus, in saying this shocking statement, he, he sits down on the Mount of Olives with his disciples. And this is called, this passage of scripture is, is, is more broadly spoken about in, in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Mark 13 is more of a condensed version of it. But this is called the Olivet Discourse. The reason it's called the Olivet Discourse is because Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives and he talked for a while. If you got one of the Bibles that are in red letters, when Jesus says things, you'll see most of chapter 13 and there are a lot of red letters. And so Jesus is giving this discourse. I'm going to start referring to all my conversations as discourses. That sounds intelligent, doesn't it? I'm talking. No, I discourse. <laughs> Jesus gives all of it discourse. At the, uh, looking over the office of the temple, and Peter and James and John and Andrew were questioning him privately. And they asked these two questions. Tell us when these things will be, and what will be the sign when all of these things are going to be fulfilled? Jesus, when's this temple going down, and what's this end going to look like? And so Jesus, at this point, peels back the apocalyptic picture. He goes eschatologically apocalyptic on everyone. And he peels back the picture to say, listen, there's things that are going to happen. But I'm using this as an opportunity to encourage you to remain true to the hope that will endure beyond all these things. Heaven and earth will pass away. 
but it's my words that will endure. It's when you get to chapter, or verse 4 of this chapter, chapter 13, that in the realm of Christianity, Christians go everywhere with this. And when you talk about apocalyptic, eschatological views, I mean, there is preterism, partial preterism, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib, pre-wrath, no-trib, all-mill, pre-mill, post-mill. And some of you are like, what are you talking about? It sounds like a foreign language you're talking, right? I mean, all of that has to do with people's predictions on when Jesus is going to come back, a lot of in a seven-year time period. And people, when they talk about this, get so tooth and nail over it, they're like, if you don't agree with me, you will die, right? I mean, it is like the hills to die. And I just want you to know, when it comes to theology, I think there are certain hills to make big deals about. I mean, there are certain hills to die on. Um, the deity of Christ, inerrancy of scripture, uh, the Trinity, uh, salvation by grace through faith. I mean, those are pillars of Christianity. When it comes to es- eschatology, when I, when I studied, I studied under um, theology, I studied under pre-trib, pre-mill, uh, theological ways of thinking. And, but when I come to that form of eschatology, I just want you to know I'm not dying for it. I'm not like, I'll lay my life down for this. There is no way. When I, look at, when I look at the first coming of Jesus, people didn't even get his first coming right. I'm not going to be so arrogant and be like, I got his second coming exactly predicted, okay? Everyone listen to this. But rather, in, in knowing what Scripture's ultimate focus is in sharing this to you, that's where I want to highlight. And I want to give us some thoughts on how to approach this type of Scripture. As Jesus goes, eschatological, apocalyptic. Uh, eschatology deals with the end times, right? It, it deals with final matters of death and judgment, the future state, the, the destination of your soul and all of mankind. Eschatology. Apocalyptic comes from the, it's a Greek word, it means revelation. Apocalyptic literature is a type of eschatology where they, they take symbolisms and imagery to, to predict disasters and destruction that lay in the future. But as Jesus shares this apocalyptic, eschatological thought, the the overriding thought in all of it is the hope of his people as it rests in Jesus because he is the one that will overcome all things. He is victorious. But when it comes to the details of this, people go bonkers over some of the things that are discussed, like, they look at apocalyptic literature as the, the primary purpose is to create charts and specific details. Uh, I want you to know this morning, I'm not going to give the prediction that Jesus is going to return January 23rd, 2018, right? I, that's not the point of, that's not the primary means of apocalyptic literature. Even Tim LaHaye, who wrote the book um, Left Behind, or the series, I should say, Left Behind. I, I was visiting a, a, a uh, university, Bible college universities uh, like 15 years ago or more. And I remember I was walking on the campus with seminary professors and they were just now commemorating this building of which Tim LaHaye donated a million dollars to this Bible college for the building of this, this facility. And as they're cutting the ribbons, I just hear one of the remarks as this is going on where someone says, you know, uh, he wrote all these, all these books, but he himself even says that this view that he carries within these books is not even a, a, a reason to divide over as Christians. Warren Wiersbe, who's also, a, he's a pre-trib, pre-mill, comes out of that camp, which pre-trib means 
Jesus raptures the church before seven-year tribulation. Jesus returns before his thousand-year millennial reign. Warren Risby says this. This is in his commentary on the, on the Gospel of Mark in this chapter. He says, uh, I agree with that theology, but I do not make it a test of orthodoxy or spirituality. You know, when it comes to this literary genre, eschatological, apocalyptic, I think there are certain approaches we take to this passage that are this, this sort of genre that's unhealthy. Um, some things this morning I, can, I think I should encourage you in as you read through the Bible and uh, discover truth and want to walk with Jesus in your, in your own relationship to him and encourage the body of Christ to do the same. Well, apocalyptic literature, as I said, is, is, a, is a, a genre or a type of literature, and therefore, because of its categorization, there are certain interpretive rules that help you best understand what's being communicated in those passages of Scripture. When it comes to apocalyptic literature, it doesn't have to be written in sequence. It could be recapitulation. It could bounce around with ideas. Uh, apocalyptic literature, when it comes to that, it's more difficult for us in our culture today to conceive of what it's discussing um, because it's not a genre you read. Like you don't go to, I don't know, Barnes and Nobles and you're like, where's your apocalyptic section? I'm really looking forward to reading some literature. People don't write that way anymore. And so for us to understand that style of writing, we've got to, to learn some of, the, some of the rules for interpretation of what's taking place there. A lot of pop apocalyptic literature, the way it's written is metaphorically to mean something more literally. And one of the things I've seen people do when they come to books like Revelation or apocalyptic sections like Mark chapter 13, they'll, they'll get in discussions. And because someone doesn't agree with their view, they'll be like, well, I just take it literal. So that makes me, you know, my interpretation trumped over your interpretation. Of which, I mean, it's just worth taking a step back and just saying, you know, Revelation 17, it talks about, uh, the whore streaking across the air on the back of the beast. Like, is that something that you really think in life you're going to walk outside and be like, oh, there it is. Like, is that, I mean, are you looking forward to, to seeing that sight? I mean, it doesn't, you literally take that literal, right? No. Uh, apocalyptic literature carries a metaphorical idea, symbols and imagery to point to something Literal. It's written in a way to disguise a message. In, in fact, uh, John was exiled to the island of Patmos. Some people believe he, re- he writes Revelation, exiled island of Patmos. And the only way he could have gotten that book off the island is to disguise the message. And disguise it in such a way that those familiar with scripture would know the images he's using because a lot of Revelation draws its image from Old Testament pictures. And so if you really want to understand apocalyptic literature in scripture... You need to understand pictures of the Old Testament as it relates to the New and even some of the culture in the first century. But the ultimate goal in all of it is to bring us in hope before the Lord and worship of Him. I mean, you see that in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 all the way to the end of the book where again, Jesus is saying in chapter 21, my people are with me. I dwell among them. There's no more pain and no more suffering. The first is gone. The drive of it is a place for your hope to rest in tribulation. Because the Bible tells us, if you're a follower of Jesus, you should expect persecution and tribulation because of your faith. True followers of Jesus walk as aliens in this world. 
which means your view contradicts the systems of this world. And because of that, you can be ostracized, persecuted, isolated, face tribulation. But there is something that remains with hope for you. And that's what Jesus is saying to his disciples. They ask this question. And Jesus knows the world's about to be rocked. But Jesus wants them to know, heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will endure. If there's something that you cling to, it's the hope that Christ brings. And so when you want to understand apocalyptic literature, this is one of the most important things I can, I can say to you in reading passages like this in the Bible. Don't jump to make application. In fact, I think it might be even better this morning if we tried to not make application at all because of the abuse that's done in portions of Scripture like this. And the reason I say that is because of this. The Bible was first rent, written, especially these, these passages of the New Testament, to an audience in the first century before it was written to you in the 21st century. And so what I, what I mean is when you want to understand Scripture, you've got to understand before the here and now what it meant there and then. Because God's just not writing verses to them where they're like, they get a whole book of the Bible, like, what does this mean? I don't know. This, is, this must be for the 21st century people. It's direct application to their lives as well. And so in order to make proper application, we've got to first understand what it means to our lives. Let me, let me just give you a few examples and some of the things that I've seen even abused when it comes to the passages of the Bible like this. If you, if you start off in, in, in Revelation, the, the book says it's written to the seven churches. Why those churches? I mean, you read the names of the seven churches. The seven churches that are listed aren't even the, necessarily the most popular books in the New Testament. I mean, you got books directly written to churches. And yet you read in Revelation and some of those churches aren't on that list. Why those seven churches? And why seven? Why would he pick seven? Well, imageries and symbols matter in, in apocalyptic literature. And so seven is a number of completeness. Perhaps... Perhaps in talking about seven churches, he's showing the totality of, of God's people represented in seven local communities. Or it could be the ages of the churches playing out within the seven, but it's a, it's a number of completeness. And maybe the, those seven churches best represent how churches would interact throughout history. Or, or how about this? When you get to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, it talks about the worship. It says uh, there's this door and John opens it and he looks inside and there's this picture of worship in heaven. And the beauty of it and how it erupts and how glorious and powerful it is. And it talks about this lion. And this lion, you know, in, in, in Scripture is a picture of Jesus. And then it gets to chapter 5. And John's on his face crying. Because there's one that needs to be worthy to open the seals. And all of a sudden they say there is, there is this one who is worthy. And when John turns around, he doesn't see the lion. But instead he sees a lamb who was slain but yet standing. Now, imagery is a picture of Jesus who comes conquering and he was slaughtered and he lives forevermore. And that's the theme of revelation and worship of who Christ is. You go throughout the chapter and it even gets more detail. Like in chapter 4, in that worship, it describes the 24 elders. Who are the 24 elders? I've heard some people try to describe it. Well, there's 12 tribes in the Old Testament and there's 12 apostles in the New Testament. And to show Old and New Testament, they got 24. 12 plus 12 makes 24. Which I guess is okay. But when you study during the life of John, you understand in order to run the temple, 
It took 24 priests. And the picture in Revelation chapter 4 and 5, it's the temple of God, the place where the Lord dwells, seating on his throne. And the priests or the elders gathered around that throne and worshiped before God. And you think about the picture as that plays itself out in the New Testament, that Jesus, he tells us that in the Old Testament, build the temple, God desires to tabernacle with us. And in the New Testament, Jesus comes and it says, Jesus dwelt or tabernacles with us. And then it goes on to tell us now, after the veil was rent and the temple is destroyed, that God's presence now dwells in you. You are the temple of God. And now you see the 24 elders gathered around the ultimate throne of the Lord as a representation of God's people and praise to him. Beautiful imagery. Or what about this one? This is the one where we can all fist fight over, but what about the mark of the beast? Chapter 14. Mark of the beast, you know, 666. You get a little computer chip, and now the devil owns your soul forever, right? Is that what it means? Well, if you start to make application without interpretation, I guess you could take it that far. But remember, a text of scripture, you've got to answer first what it meant there and then before the here and now. And I can promise you, John and the readers were not like, Man, we're just waiting for the 20th century to come around so they can invent these computers for these chips. So we know we're good for at least, I don't know, 20 centuries. It's not what they're thinking at all. When it comes to the mark of the beast, the author's drawing on a picture of imagery. In the Old Testament, God's people wore these things called phylacteries. They were worn on their wrists and on their forehead. Contained in those phylacteries was the word of God, and it showed themselves as segregated to the Lord, a people wholly separated for the Lord's purposes, indicated by the phylacteries in which they wore on their wrists and their head. Now, if you think about that picture and as it relates to the mark of the beast, describing on the wrist and the forehead, it's not talking about computer chips. They have no idea what computer chips even are in the first century. And to make that sort of application is to grossly push scripture well beyond what's being painted there. But what he's saying is that they belong to the beast. I guess maybe this morning I could tell you, don't take computer chips, but I'm, I'm kidding. But what, I, what he's really saying is, don't belong to the beast. They have indication in their lives that they belong there by the marks that's there representing their ownership of him. You belong to Jesus. Indication of Israel by the phylacteries in which they wore on their hands and in their forehead. And so when you go to read this type of literature, far better, far better to answer what it means to them there and then before here and now. Because that keeps us from misrepresenting all sorts of passages of the Bible. Let me give you one more example. Um, how, How many of you, I want to be honest, how many of you looked at the sun when the apocalypse came without glasses on? Who did it? Huh? Huh? All right, there's like four of you. We'll start our own club after church, okay? New connection group forming here. All right, so, so I, I knew this was going to happen. I was just waiting for it to come across one of my social media feeds, but man, it did. Like, I come across it and it's like the end of the world because of this solar eclipse taking place. Because people come to passages like uh, Mark chapter 13 and verse 24 and 25. Let me read it to you. In those days, after the tribulation, there will, the sun will be dark and, and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven. The powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds. And someone will take that verse and be like, eclipse is happening. End of the world is upon us. Right? Which, let me just say, 
when it comes to that way of thinking, I just find a little bit of, well, I should say a profound amount of arrogance in it. Let me just tell you why. Um, It's not that I hate people that take that stand. I just think there's very bad hermeneutics applied to Scripture. Because Revelation wasn't even written with America in mind. Okay? And when you go to the passage and you try to be like, whatever the present is, the current time is the Antichrist or maybe the Queen of England or whatever. Like those, those aren't even in the minds of the people during the time this passage is written. When you look at uh, the, these, these ideas of these eclipses trying to predict that the end of the world is coming, it's like if, if America may not be in mind when this apocalyptic literature is written and, and the eclipse is happening over American soil, it's like, how arrogant do you have to be to think like this is the sign of the end of the world when the scripture was written to the re- around the other side of the world and yet we're the indicator that the end of the world is coming in? It's like, God, America is the greatest and the rest of them set beneath us. And so we, since we know we're the best people, obviously the sign of the end times is happening on American soil. Right? That, that's, that's poor interpretation of scripture. But let me give you an idea of what I think is happening here in Mark chapter uh, 13, verse 24. So he talks about this. In, in, after the, that tribulation, the sun will be darkened, the moon will give its, not give its light, the stars will fall and be falling from heaven, and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken, and then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. When you study Jewish pictures of the celestials, okay, Jews had a few words that are important. They had layers to their idea of heaven, and I'm not saying there are three heavens, what I'm saying is they have layers to the atmosphere. Paul talks about the third heavens in, in 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians chapter 12. So in the Jewish mind, when they looked to the skies, they saw the place the birds flew. That was the first heavens. The clouds, where the clouds dwell, that was the second heavens. But where the sun, the moon, the stars hung, that was God's dwelling place. That was where his celestial glory was made known. The presence of God exists here. And so when they talk about the celestials, they would look towards the heavens. And so when he's talking about it in this passage of scripture, they would often refer to this as the place where the power of God is being made known. In fact, there's another word uh, popular in scripture. It's called Elohim. Elohim could mean God or it could generically mean just ruler. In, in fact, judges that rule here in the United States and Lehi, the, whatever the name of the judge is here in this area, he could be referred to as an Elohim, a ruler. And so they would look to the heavens and they would see the powers and authorities of everything. They, you could refer to that as the Elohims, but they worshiped one God. That's all Israel acknowledged. They were monotheistic. There was only one God that ever existed, ever would be. And, and if you read in this section, this passage of scripture, it says in verse 22, it warns you. It says, false Christ and false prophets will arise and will show signs and wonders in order to lead astray, if possible, the elect. So he's saying people are teaching about a different Jesus. And then there's false prophets coming up, and they're even provoking signs and wonders. And he says, in order to lead astray, if possible, even the elect, but take heed, behold, I have told you everything in advance. So Jesus is saying, people are going to talk about Jesus, they're going to use the name Jesus, and it's not Jesus. And they're even going to look deceptive in the way they do it, and it's not Jesus. But then you get this picture in verse 24, where everything is shaking. And then you see in verse 26, but the son of man is victorious. I'm saying this picture for us is imagery of all other authority and power in this world falling down to the one king of kings and lord of lords who will rule. While everyone else may play the game, there's one who endures. 
next time there's an eclipse over the United States of America, you don't have to go to the grocery store, okay? It's not telling us that the end of days is near. But that Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. So it's important when you read apocalyptic literature to understand the there and then before you get to the here and now. Bad reasons to study this stuff. Let me just give you a few. One is to make exact predictions. I told you the ultimate goal is worshiping Christ. It's not about predicting the exact date of end times. In fact, when it comes to to prophecy, um, Daniel, who wrote the book of Daniel, apocalyptic literature, he says this at the end of chapter 12. As for me, I heard but could not understand. Daniel's talking about in chapter 12 of Revelation, that prophetic statement, he did not understand what was happening. I don't think that was the case in everything Daniel spoke, but I think it was Daniel's raising his concern over that last statement he's giving in, in Revelation 12. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10, As to salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries. I think that's important. It's written to us for a reason. And so the prophets of the Old Testament are making careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. And in verse 12, it was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. So it's not saying, hey, and and as they were looking in these inquiries, they predicted every detail of the future and created a picture-perfect chart of which you can buy at your local Christian bookstore. That's not what it's saying. But it's saying that they could begin to recognize as this was unfolding, they were seeing that what they were talking about was still laying out in the future. Prophecy sort of gives this idea that they can see the mountaintops, but they can't see the valleys. One of the things that, um, when I moved to Utah, one of the things that I loved, I, I made the drive from like East Coast to West Coast a handful of times. One of the things I loved to do, um, well, I didn't love the middle part so much. I'm sorry if you're from the middle, but man, uh, <laughs> it got bored. I, I didn't want to fall asleep and crash, but it got boring from about Indiana to uh, Colorado. Sorely disappointed in Colorado. My whole life, I grew up thinking Colorado was nothing but mountains. And then you get there and you, then you realize that John Denver was full of stuff. But, but you see, and when you get to Denver, finally, you finally start to see the mountains. And this is the cool game I got to play is like, how far do you think that is? I don't know. That's so big. And I would guess like 20 miles and you drive, you're like, you're way off. It's like 70 miles. You know, you come over the next mountain, you see the next mountain range. You're like, how far do you think that is? And it's like 50 miles. Like, Whoa, it blows you away. How far you can see that? And that's sort of the idea of prophecy in scripture. They're making these prophetic statements and they could see the peaks of the mountaintops. By the way, I'm not against middle America. I know a lot of great people from middle America. I just don't want to drive through it. Or anything. So, so you see these beautiful, beautiful mountaintops, but you can't really see the valleys. And that's what they're saying in 1 Peter. But in the end of Revelation, this is what it said, verse 22. And behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who heeds the words of the prophecy of this book. And so it's written for a purpose, and that purpose is for you. And the ultimate goal is to find your victory in Jesus. The hold to him. I think one of the second reasons it's bad to look at this type of apocalyptic literature is for the purpose of just escaping tribulation. I told you I was taught pre-tribulational, pre-millennial way of, of thinking when it comes to scripture. I think at this point I can show you every view and why people hold to those views. But pre-tribulational, pre-millennial is what my background is. Pre-trib, meaning you think uh, before Jesus return or Jesus return before the seven-year 
tribulation, but one of the things I can be honest that I've never liked about this idea of this, that word, pre-trib, it sort of carries the thought that I'm too good to go through adversity. Jesus is coming before hard things happen, so don't worry about it, you know. Um, I find that title kind of a shameful title because when I think about some of my other brothers and sisters in Christ around the world, I know their faith costs them. And they're going through tribulation. Their faith is real because they've counted the cost and they still choose to follow Jesus. I mean, in America, it's somewhat easy. You can follow Jesus because people just follow Jesus and it's kind of cool and then you can half-heartedly look like you follow Jesus and never really truly be a follower of Christ. Pre-tribulational theology kind of alienates people that are going through tribulation and hardship. In fact, if I'm being honest to you, when you study church history, if you read, um, I don't have have time to go through this, but in verse 14, uh, it starts talking about the abomination of desolation, the Antichrist. When you read early church fathers, the early church fathers thought that they would see the Antichrist. In fact, it's throughout their early church writings, the Didache that was written in the first century at the same time the Bible is written. The Didache was a manual that taught um, churches how they were to function and some of the practices that they were to partake of. It actually at one point talked about how to baptize somebody if you're in the desert and there's no water. It's a, a book written first century during the same time as the Bible, chapter 16. It talks about being there for the Antichrist, Shepherd of Hermes, uh, the second vision, Irenaeus, 29.1 in this book called Against Heresies. And again, same book in 33.4 and 35.1. Tertullian, his prescription against heresies, number four. And Tertullian in his book on the resurrection of the flesh, Hippolytus, third century, writes a commentary on Daniel, expecting to see the Antichrist. Cyprian, his first epistle, third century. Epistle chapter 55, verse 7, it talks about not being afraid of the persecution of the Antichrist. These guys expected to endure it. And, and in fact, it was Tertullian that said this. He said to his persecutors, we multiply whenever we are mown down by you. The blood of Christians is a seed. One of the things that Tertullian recognizes is when the church was persecuted because their faith was rooted in Jesus, their ability to stand for Christ in the midst of persecution only fueled the flame for people to want to pursue Christ because of the encouragement they saw in the life of these individuals. They didn't believe when they died their life was ending. And so they boldly stuck with Christ in the midst of tribulation because of the hope they had in Jesus. That's the point of apocalyptic literature. And so Jesus says this, be on your guard. Don't let this surprise you. If you love him, you are going to come to a place in life when you're demonstrating that where you're going to have to choose between someone who makes you try to love them more or Jesus. You don't follow Jesus because it's easy. You follow Jesus because it's true. When you study church history, you see for the first three centuries, it's actually for the first 250 years, starting with Nero, Domination, Diocletian, for the first 250 years, 125 of those Christians are martyred. And the 125 where they weren't martyred, you lived in fear anyway because you would be ostracized from your society and martyrdom could break out at any moment. 
And so Jesus says this. Don't let this catch you off guard. When it comes to your Christian faith, this is just kind of the gut check. Is your hope really deeper than your circumstance? And then he goes on and he says in verse 6, and, and Jesus began to say to them, see to it that no one misleads you. Many will come in my name saying, I am he. And, I will, and will, they will mislead many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be frightened. Those things must take place. But that is not yet the end. For a nation will rise up against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will also be famines. These things are merely the beginning of the birth pains. Jesus is saying, people are going to pop up. They're going to say they're Jesus. They're going to talk about a Jesus that isn't the biblical Jesus. Stay true to Jesus. Heaven and earth will pass away. But my word will never pass away. I'm not going to get through this whole text, but it's funny. Both services, I had all this laid out and I had to cut it short. But let me say this. One of the two places of the Bible that give me hope that I rest my life in um, and I want God to just remind me of is Matthew 28 and Matthew 16. Matthew 28 comes after the Olivet Discourse when Jesus talks about the end of days. And the, but he says this, Matthew 28, 19 and 20. He gives the church a call. Go into the world, make disciples of all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things I have commanded you. And then he says this, Lo, I'm with you always to the end of the age. Jesus promises to his disciples who he knows are going to face tribulation. He promises his presence with them always. I'm with you. And Jesus also made this statement in Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, you are Peter. On this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about this passage already because we went through it in Mark together. But I just want to remind you of this because this is what brings us to a culminating point in apocalyptic literature. Your idea of church becomes significant to your who you see yourself as in Jesus. <clears throat> the early church, when they would meet, they would meet together for these things they would refer to as love feasts. That's the way John refers to it in 1 John. Their gatherings were called love feasts. They would partake of a meal together. They would sing together. They would read scripture together. They would talk theology together. They would take communion. They would depart. And they would meet in homes. Sometimes they would find within a community there might be a designated room, but they didn't really have any buildings. So they would meet together as a group in this belief in Jesus and what he called them to in this world that, that, that God would be with them always and to go in this world and make disciples and the gates of hell was not going to prevail. It was this movement. What brought them together wasn't the facility. It was this movement of people going forward in Christ. In fact, when, when one of their colleagues was martyred, when a follower in Jesus was martyred, they would take their communion celebration and rather than necessarily have it in a common place, they would move it outside to wherever that person was martyred, and they would partake of communion together over the grave of that martyr. Because the promise of the communion is that we will drink it new together in the kingdom with our Heavenly Father. And they would celebrate. When Constantine became a believer, he was the ruler in the early 4th century, Constantine became a Christian, he legalized Christianity. When Constantine legalized Christianity, it became a popular thing and it brought people into the church. And with it came some pagan ideas. 
One of the things they brought with it, I'm not saying this is good or bad. I'm indifferent to this. I think God can use anything. But one of the things they brought were buildings. See, in their pagan places of worship, they had buildings. And so they thought the church, it needs buildings. It needs a place where they can, as this movement grows, a place for them to gather. They called these buildings basilicas. When the church moved from these basilicas, it was in Latin, these basilicas, as the church moved to the Gothic cultures, it became kirches. As it moved to the, to the German cultures, it was a kirch, of which you translate today as church. And so when you read your Bible, most of the time in Scripture, it's a word-for-word translation. We choose the NASB as our text of Scripture because it's the most wooden translation in the Greek and Hebrew. It's literally word-for-word translation. But sometimes in our language, we have a difficult time picking a word that would uh, come into an English word from Greek to English. And so they have to create an idea within our culture of what that word is. And it's not necessarily a a word-for-word translation. It's just more of an idea that's carried. And one of those ideas is church. So in the Greek text, it was ecclesia. It wasn't about buildings. It was about movements, these gathering places, these love feasts. But yet, starting in the time of Constantine, they started to erect these buildings. Now, for, for hundreds of years in Christianity, it became this idea of building, building, building. And so by the time you get to the 14th, 15th century, when they translated into English, they used this word church, not as a direct translation, but as a substitute for ecclesia. And so when you think about church, the question that you asked this morning is, why in the world are you here? Why do you come? Can I tell you the worst reasons? Because you have to. You're part of a movement. Jesus didn't build his church to gather in a building and just think about the building. Jesus built his church to rally around the movement which he created within himself. The cross becomes a means to the end of which the church preaches in this world. Regardless of the circumstances that we endure, there is a hope that outlasts all of it. Which makes what you do here important. Because what you do here and your worship encouraging the body of Christ fuels the fire of the movement of what we do beyond these walls. It's not about a building. It's about what God desires to do in his people. But regardless of what happens, of whatever eschatological chart you want to make and predictions and how certain you think you are in those things, (coughs) excuse me, the ultimate thing The ultimate thing that we should rest in, heaven and earth will pass away. But Jesus' word will endure and run for that movement. This message has been brought to you by Alpine Bible Church in Lehigh, Utah. If you'd like more information, please visit us online at alpinebible.com.